invite you to turn in your Bible this evening to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. While you're doing that, I just want to thank God for the prayer request we had from Jacob, who's dealing with something in his life he doesn't want there, anger, 12-year-old boy. Uh, how many of us don't have things in our life that we don't want there um, and need just to have the humility to say, uh, would you pray for me? I need help. So a little child shall lead them. And I would encourage uh, us all in whatever ways, uh, as we deal with our own besetting sins, the things that uh, we, we do and think and say that we, that we hate and we don't want to be there, um, I just encourage us to let the gospel uh, give us the humility to acknowledge it and ask people to pray for us uh, for uh, the things that we deal with. Um, so just a wonderful example, Jacob. I just really honor that. And we'll be praying. Let's um, give our attention to God's word. I, um, so we're thinking about being the church. Um, I was this last Saturday, I uh, was uh, privileged to give a, a lecture at uh, the banquet held by Georgetown Prosperum Church. It's great to see some people I went to high school with. And, um, and I talked there about being the church in a pagan age and, and uh, did so out of the book of Revelation. And I'd like to uh, keep that sort of theme uh, this evening, but uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's something amazing about being the church. I'm going to begin reading uh, the first um, 11 verses here, and then we're going to pick it up again at verse 50 through to the end of the chapter. So let's give our attention to God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, whether it was, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." And then Paul goes on an extended discussion about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, as some are saying, then, um, then we are of all men most miserable and, and uh, our faith is in vain. But Paul picks up uh, that Christ has been raised from the dead and then talks about the resurrection body. And we're going to pick it up in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then our text for tonight. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's ask the Lord to bless. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And thank you that you call us to live in that truth and to be engaged in his cause. For he is the living, reigning, victorious king. And we are the, his people, his church, his bride. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear your call to us tonight. And we give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have been paying attention at all to what is happening in our society over the last few years, uh, you realize things have dramatically and really fundamentally changed. Um, If you're 30 years old, the world that you live in today is fundamentally different than the world that you were born into. Uh, Historians and sociologists are commenting that um, they really cannot find another example in history of a culture so rapidly, radically transforming its foundational beliefs. And that's what's happening in in our uh, culture today. Things that were culturally impossible to conceive even 10 years ago are now realities. Uh, 10 years ago, only the most extreme alarmist was suggesting that transgenderism would be the new law of the land and that people would lose their jobs for suggesting that boys were boys and girls were girls. 10 years ago, some people maybe were, but they were way on the fringes and everybody said they were crazy. And now it's reality. 10 years ago, we would not have imagined that Christians would be sued and lose their businesses for failing to celebrate and applaud homosexuality. Uh, We would not have imagined that religious liberty would be on the table for discussion, and yet it absolutely is. I was listening to a a lecture given by by, um, Dr. Robert Godfrey, my former professor at Westminster, and um, he was just saying that what we're witnessing is the end of Christendom in the Western world. And he suggested that the historical marker of the end of Christendom in our country is, uh, was the Obergefell decision of the Supreme Court in 2015 where uh, homosexual marriage was declared constitutional. And Kennedy, Justice Kennedy, really enshrined uh, into law the principle of a new pagan age where he says each person has the right to define their own identity and that is the essence of freedom. The essence of freedom is the right to define your own identity. In other words, there is no God who defines us, who's created us, to whom we'll be responsible. There is nothing but the autonomous self. And, um, well, that's, that's paganism. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And in the six years since that ruling, we have seen our society descend into ever-increasing folly and demonic madness. We need to be aware what's happening aren't just sociological changes, it is demonic and spiritual influences. The good news is that the church has been here before. The good news is that uh, Jesus Christ is reigning on the throne. Jesus Christ has a call for the church today. Um, the world of the first, of first century Corinth, the people that Paul was writing to here in 1 Corinthians, is very much like the world that we live in today. It was pagan through and through. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, the most popular temple in town was the uh, temple of Aphrodite, the goddess Aphrodite, who is the goddess of sensuality, erotic ecstasy, and fertility. 
Uh, it was a dark, dark place. But a church had been planted there. Paul had come, and, or the gospel had been proclaimed, and, and uh, a church had, had been born by the power of God. And there were believers there who were committed to Christ and to His cause. And, and so Paul's words here are inspiring call to them to be the church of Christ, the resurrected Christ in a pagan age. And that call is the same for us today. Our text highlights uh, the necessary tension that uh, exists in the church if we are to be um, a true church, a, a God-honoring church. And the tension is between the images that Paul uses here in chapter 58 when he talks about being steadfast, immovable, always abounding. Steadfast, immovable, and always abounding. One, one term is, carries the idea of something fixed, solid, like a rock, a mountain. And the other has the image of moving, growing, bearing fruit. Something dynamic, vibrant with life. And Paul puts those two images together to describe the church. Well, we're going to look at those uh, images, but first uh, we need to put this text, verse 58, in its context because Paul begins with a therefore. And we have to ask, well, what, what, why is it there? Uh, well, Paul, you see, wants to root his charge to the church in all that he has just told them about Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the victory of Jesus Christ. In Paul's mind, everything about the church hinges on the historical veracity of this event. As he explains in the chapter, if Jesus has not been raised, well, then we're still dead in our sin. And those who've died in the Lord are just dead. And Paul has been proven to be a liar. And uh, those who have believed in the gospel are of all men most miserable. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised, if Jesus is not reigning on the right hand of God, having purchased literally and truly eternal redemption for all those who are elect, all those who believe in Him, well, if that's not true, let's just go home. Then, then there's no point whatsoever in any of it. I remember, um, uh, I believe it was John Piper preaching on this, and, and he was talking about a... Um, Roman Catholic um, monk in, in Rome, he's, he, was, he was higher than that, maybe a bishop, but he was, someone was asking him about, um, you know, are you sure these things happened, that the, the, the gospel is true? And he says, yes, I'm sure. And they said, well, what if it weren't true? What if you get to the end and, and um, you just find out it, it wasn't true? Jesus actually didn't rise from the dead. And the monk said, well, um, you know, I, I would be content with that because the Christian life is still worth living. And, and, and Piper was nearly pulling his hair out. Um, that is not what Paul says. If it's not true, we've been duped. We've been fools. If it's not true, we are, of all men, most miserable. But, I love what Paul says, how he says it, verse 20, 21. But in fact, Christ has been raised. It is a fact, historical truth. Jesus has been raised. And if that is true... Well, then we are the church of the living Lord Jesus Christ. We are the fruit of Christ's sovereign, victorious power as he's, as he's accomplishing his purposes in heaven. For he said, I will build my church. We are not here as a voluntary association. The church exists 
by the work, by the power of a risen Lord Jesus Christ who reigns at the right hand of God the Father. And that church, the church of Jesus, has a calling in this world. And so when Paul says, therefore, he's placing the charge he's about to give on, on the foundation of the victory of King Jesus. And Paul goes on, as we just read, that he explains the ramifications of Christ's resurrection for us. We will not all sleep, but we will, we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will raise, and, and uh, then, then this mortal body will put on immortality, and this, this perishable body will put on the imperishable, because death has been swallowed up in victory. Where's the victory of death? Where's the victory of the grave? They've been... They've been conquered by Jesus Christ. And that victory of Christ belongs to us. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the foundation upon which the church stands. That's, that's the reason we exist. And from that foundation then Paul calls the church into action. Two aspects of the mandate that Paul gives. Be steadfast and abound. Be steadfast. Uh, the church, if it's going to be true to the call of Christ, uh, it has to be unmovable. It, it, uh, it needs to commit itself to the old paths, in a sense, to standing fast. Paul expre uh, expresses a similar thought in the next chapter, chapter 16, 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. This is not a passive, sort of lethargic traditionalism where we just, we just do things the way we've always done things. Uh, standing fast is an active word. Uh, the tense tells us it's to be a, an, an intentional, ongoing activity. Nothing passive about it. If we're going to abound in the work of the Lord, it's essential that we stand fast and hold to the teaching. And every generation has to do this for itself. That's why it's so important, young people, for you to, to understand the truth, to lay hold of the truth, to stand fast, to commit yourself to it. You've got to own it for yourself. It can't be, it can't be your parents. And Paul has told us what to hold fast to. He's just laid it out in the first few verses of chapter 15, the facts of the gospel. Brothers, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. For I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. So the foundational truths of the gospel. Who is Jesus, and why did he come? Hold fast, because the world is going to want to push you from that doctrine that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ came to die for sin. And the world will tell you other reasons, uh, and, and people in the church will suggest other reasons why Jesus came, and, and, and remove this truth. Happens all the time. Hold fast. Jesus was buried. He was truly dead, and Jesus was raised gloriously and victoriously. And that obedient, sin-bearing, um, redemption-granting, sin-atoning, victorious resurrection of Christ, that's the gospel that Paul preached them, and then he preached them, as you read in his letters, not only what Jesus did, but all that Jesus commands. 
And Jesus commands through his apostles that those who believe, belong to him and believe him in him are to live in a certain way. They're to walk in the newness of life. They're to put off the old self and to be putting on the new self. Paul says, all this I've taught you. This is what it means to be a disciple. Jesus said exactly the same thing. John 8, 31, he says to his disciples, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. If you hold to my teaching, not just intellectually, but as a way of life. So Paul says, church, hold on to this. Hold fast to this. All that Christ has done for you, all that he's commanded of you, all that he's promised to you. But we hold fast to the end of abounding. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's an essential point because it is easy for a church, for individuals, to settle for what we would call steadfastness uh, without hungering for the abounding part. So I think one of our weaknesses, and I don't think this is endemic to Reformed Christianity, I think it's just endemic to human nature. One of our weaknesses is that we're very interested, or we can be interested in standing fast, being conservative in that sense, but, but not really talking about and praying about abounding. What would abounding look like? What would abounding look like in the OPC? What would abounding look like uh, at Harvest Church? What would abounding look like in our own life? Is that something we should think about? Is it something we should pray for? Oh, absolutely. Paul commands that we abound in the work of the Lord. R.B. Kuyper, um, in his uh, book, The Glorious Body of Christ, excellent book, I highly recommend it to you, but he, talks, he says it this way. He's going to use the word progressive in a good sense, not a bad sense. He says, it is no less necessary that the church be progressive than that it be conservative. History tells us that a church is sure to lose its Christian character if it ceases to be conservative, if it ceases to hold fast. History also tells us that a church will become extinct if it fails to be progressive, abounding. Never may it, after the manner of liberalism, tear down the foundation that has been laid. That would mean retrogression and even destruction. But neither may it be satisfied to guard the foundation without building upon it. That would spell petrification. It must maintain the foundation with the view to building on it and then proceed to build. That's a, that's a great word from an old saint. So maintain the foundation. By all means, we must maintain the foundation. But, but, but with a view to building on it and then Proceed to build. It's not enough to be conservative. It's not enough to say, yes, we believe those things. Paul says, believe those things, hold to those things, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And I think as a church and as individuals, then we need to be asking the question, what would that look like? What would it look like for us to hold fast and, as we, and to hold fast to the end of abounding? Well, that would, I think it would look like intentional a catechizing our little children, teaching them the truths of God's Word. It would look like training our young people. It would look like discipling our adult people. It would look like evangelizing lost people. Right? It would, it would look like taking action on the basis of the things that we believe 
and doing something with that, to build upon that. So we're, we're building the, 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 the bricks, in a sense, the stones, the living stones for the next generation as we catechize our children, as we train our young people. Uh, we're strengthening the church as we disciple people as followers of Jesus Christ. We're expanding the church as we evangelize. This is why we need to, and I think it's so important that we just, just put the word intentional in, in the way we think about being a Christian. So, so that we're, we're, we're considering, Lord, what would you have me to do as I hold fast, um, as I hold fast your truth, as I delight in your truth, what would abounding then look like in my life? I think for Harvest Church, this is something for us to, prayer, to be in prayer about. Um, let's not be content with the foundation that God's laid for us. Let's delight in that foundation and lay hold of that foundation and then pray to abound and take action to abound. You see, the biblical church holds on by moving on. We hold on by moving on. And if we're not moving on, if we're not seeking, what could we do by God's grace and by His power for His glory in our day? Petrification is going to take place. Right? The Spirit of God um, is not going to bless that. When, I think when Jesus is talking to the church in Ephesus um, and he's rebuking them for losing their first love, I think their first love was that abounding in the work of the Lord. The commentators J.K. Beale, uh, Beale points out that they've lost their love for the mission, for the cause, for evangelism. And Jesus says, if you do that, then I'm taking away the lampstand. If you're not going to be a light, we're going to take away the lampstand. So that's the mandate. Steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. And then Paul concludes that with a glorious motivation, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's, that is an astounding statement for people like us who live in a world where so much is in vain. Uh, there, the, 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 uh, the prophet in Ecclesiastes right? vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Well, we live in a world, friends, uh, it's the world of the perishable. It's the kingdom of decay. And, and one of the most uh, discouraging aspects of laboring in this world is precisely the, the sense that things here don't last. They break down. They fall apart. Whether you're building toasters or a business or nations, they don't last. Um, it even applies to physical exercise. And, and um, I, I say this tongue-in-cheek. I don't want you to give up, though I certainly seem to have. But um, you're, you're actually fighting a losing battle. Uh, we're we're going to go. We're going to grow old. Not that it's not worth doing. Paul says, right? Physical training has some value. Godliness, training in godliness, has value for all things. But that's the reality of the world we live in. It's, it's some of the frustration we feel um, in in this world. Maybe as we're carrying out our jobs. Uh, maybe even as we're going about family life. Tim Keller rightly says every family's in the process of growing older, breaking apart, and dying off. That's the destiny, right, of your family, in a sense, in, the, in terms of this world, no matter how tightly you might hold on to it. But what if you could build something that would last forever and belong to something that, that actually accomplished the greatest, most glorious purpose of, that anything could possibly accomplish would be the glorifying of God? What if you could be a part of that? What if your life could have that sort of weight to it? That the years that you spent here on planet earth were not spent in vain. And that you were involved in building something by the power of God. Something that would endure. Something that would last forever. 
and something that would glorify God in truth and for all time. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be uh, amazing? Wouldn't that be um, significant? Wouldn't that be something worth pursuing? Well, friends, that's exactly what Jesus Christ has called us into, as he's called us into his kingdom. He's called us into the kingdom of the imperishable, the kingdom of immortality and life and light. You see, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ endures forever, and we are citizens of the kingdom. The writer to Hebrews is writing to a a group of Christians who are deeply discouraged at the persecution uh, that they were facing, the heartache and hardship of life. And he reminds them in chapter 12, 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's a verse I think about often as, uh, as I see what's happening in our country. And we're watching, we're witnessing, friends, the shaking of a kingdom. But we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that has never been defeated and never will be defeated. A kingdom that is expanding and growing as Jesus Christ is building his church. A kingdom that is going to usher into the glory of a new heaven and a new earth. And the writers of Scripture intend that truth to be a great motivation for our lives. Yes, we live in a world that's perishable and mortal, but by faith in Jesus Christ, we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that endures forever, that God himself is building. And Paul and Jesus and the, and the writers of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, call us to joyfully participate in that kingdom. Think of how that truth of what Jesus Christ has accomplished the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, his victory, his kingdom. Think about how that fills your life with Christian uh, significance and value. I read an article uh, several years ago now. Um, I can't remember exactly the title. Uh, it, was, it was something like Mission, Mothers and Mission. And it was, it was written by a young mother who was just saying, you know, uh, when we talk about missionaries, we're asking for, you know, prayer requests, and we got little cards, and, and people are saying, you know, how can we help them out? How can we further the cause? He says, when you're, when you're a young mother, no one is saying, um, you know, tell us the latest astounding thing that God did uh, with your two-year-old, or, um, what, what, you know, how can we pray for you right now? That's just not, it's just sort of mundane. It's under, it's under the, the, the radar. It's just life. We just call it life. And, and her point was, well, it's every bit as, as dynamic and, and magnificent a work of God as the mission field. Because it is a mission field as you're raising children in the Lord. And it has the same enduring value and quality as, it, as it's part of the kingdom of God. It's part of abounding. Think about what this does for your life when you know that every work of love and every deed of faith and every sacrifice you make for the cause of Christ and, and, and to bless other people is eternally significant. So you go and you put in a hard day of work because it honors your boss and it provides for your family and it glorifies God and that day matters eternally. I think that's magnificent. And Paul wants us to know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. That means it, is, it has weight. It has glory. It has weight. It has glory. That the things that we do as God's people in this world today have that sort of significance. And Paul is, is telling us these things to spur the church in Corinth on. And he's, the Spirit has taken that word to spur us on. What would abounding look like? What could, what could God accomplish by His power and His grace as we set ourselves to hold fast and then to abound in the work of the Lord? 
I think that's a, a tantalizing question. How many people could be brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ by his power and by his spirit through our witness? How many children raised up to be servants of Jesus Christ? How many churches could be planted? What sort of impact could Harvest Church have in West Michigan and in expanding circles as we believe God has called us to abound, not just to survive, but to abound by the power of God in the work of the Lord? Let's pray for that together. We got one life to live. We get one chance to do this together. Let's pray that God would make us, would find us faithful. And I would just like to, uh, this week, encourage you just to prayerfully ask the Lord, Lord, what would abounding look like in my life? In this way, as Paul commands, what would abounding look like for our family? Abounding in the work of the Lord? And that, that's so critical, abounding in the work of the Lord. What could your family do to honor Jesus Christ? Maybe even this holiday season, what need is right in front of you uh, as a, that as a family you could participate and bless someone tremendously in the name of Jesus Christ? What, 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 what could, how could God use your family to further his cause this holiday season? How could God use your circle of friends? How could God use your small group? How could um, God use your, your presence at work? In every aspect of your life, what could happen as we hold fast with joy, with confidence, without being ashamed to the wonderful truth of the gospel to the end of abounding in the work of the Lord? May God grant it. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for the church of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, that from the very, very small beginning of a little church in Corinth, a little church in Ephesus and Thessalonica, and Lord, we... We see a church that is spread over the whole globe and a church that is growing still as, as the gospel is being proclaimed and a church that has been hated and reviled from its very existence and yet being the church of Jesus Christ, it cannot fail. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us as believers in our day the confident joy to lay hold of the truths of the word of God and the gospel to commit ourselves to living according to the commands of Christ, and Lord, then to take with, in, with, with intention our calling to abound in the work of the Lord. Lord, give us the joy of, of participating in your kingdom in that way, that we would not waste our life just being West Michigan Americans, but Lord, that we would be citizens of the kingdom with joy, with intention, and that, Lord, we would, have the, we would have the blessing of seeing you use our homes, our, our families, our church, your church, to do, Lord, more than we could ask or imagine, according to your great power at work within us, and to the glory of your name. Amen. Let's respond to the word of God uh, by singing together number 355, We Are God's People. Let's stand together and sing.
2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says to the church, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good, and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now as you go as the called church of Jesus Christ, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.